Thanks for joining us on the Gen Church Wa podcast of Generations Church. We are a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Right now, we are gearing up for the holiday season. It'll be a formational time for all. You can participate with us during this season by heading over to our website, mygenerations.church, and take a look around. In a world that downplays spiritual integration into everyday life, in this masterclass, I'm going to talk about divisions and factions, sexuality and gender, Christian liberty and philosophy, the gathering and gifting of the church, and how the life, death, and coming back to life of Jesus changes everything. As we continue in our series, Masterclass, we're going to discuss an approach to life that will see you through every change and controversy, through every internal struggle and external chaos. I hope you enjoy the teaching from today's scriptures. Welcome to Masterclass. The scripture is 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17, so I'm going to read that for you guys. Don't you know that you used to that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Will you guys pray with me? God, we just thank you so much for allowing us to gather here this morning, whether it's in person or online. God, I ask that you just speak through Kyle this morning, that you allow him to say the words that just... Help us focus on you and to grow closer with you. God, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. In your name, amen. All right, so welcome to Masterclass Week 5. What's been so fun about this series in my mind, and I don't know about you all, but it's been so good because there's a lot of things that we can become a master at. There's a lot of courses you can take. I was listening uh, to a uh, a podcast this week, and they referenced a guy uh, who does a master class on how to train your dog, and there's no dog that's untrainable, and it was like, you know, in seven easy steps, you too can train your dog, and it's fascinating because there's all kinds of these uh, just ways to become a master or become a specialist in some way, and what we're doing as we go through this series, looking at 1 Corinthians as we are trying to follow the way of Jesus with Paul as our teacher and really becoming a master and a specialist, not in just one area of life, but all of life. Because as we follow Jesus, he's to shape our life so profoundly that it helps us with our parenting, it helps us with our relationships, it helps us with our friendships, it helps us with our job. It helps us navigate kind of the the things in our culture, the world that we are encountering. Things like what do you put into your body, gender and sexuality, the gathering of the church, what it means to be spiritual, and how we size that up in our world. And so, so far we've discussed, to give you a little bit of a previously on, that God's wisdom comes in the form of a cross. Specifically, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection encompassing God's wisdom of the cross. And this wisdom, God's wisdom, precluded and transcended all human boasting, including boasting in human leaders. Since wisdom is available to those who have this spirit, the Corinthians themselves should have known that they have access to God's wisdom 
for living in all of life. But instead, they have been carrying on from this point of view of the flesh, and they have totally missed the meaning of the cross. They have tried to find their brand, their identity, and human leaders. They've been influenced by the context rather than the cross. They've been influenced by this pressure to actualize an identity rather than have their identity received from God. And they are quarreling about, they are fighting about what it means to be spiritual and who's on the right track and who's in the right group and the fact that they are fighting about which leader they are following and which one is right points to that they are living as mere humans. See, they're not just quarreling, they're not just fighting because that's what people do. The real issue is their radically misguided perception about the nature of the church, its leadership, and who they are in Jesus. And it comes out in the symptom of following certain church teachers. And so they're arguing about who's right, which group is right. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Peter? And Paul is saying, hey, the fact that you want this brand, that you want this identity to prove you're right or on the right track shows that you haven't truly understood God's wisdom at all. Because if allegiance to Christian leaders over and against the unity of the church and love of God is not how leadership in the church operates, then how should the church understand its leaders? Paul is peeling back the layers He's stripping it down to say, your behavior points to a belief that is faulty. And now that he has addressed the belief in saying that the way of the cross is the right way and that you can't reason yourself to be spiritual, that you can't simply get yourself there by thinking there, we have to go back to another layer and say, so then what do we do with Christian leadership and leadership in the church? if that's not the real problem. And so Paul, rather than just simply dismissing the issue, says, let's now address it. And so what Paul does is he begins to frame leadership in the church and how the church as a whole should think about their leaders. See, first, as mere servants of Christ, Christian leaders must not be accorded an allegiance appropriate to God alone. And secondly, in caring for his church, God holds its leaders accountable for how they build it. Paul uses two images in our text today. We're going to kind of look at chapter 3 as a whole. The garden and the temple. And in the center of his addressing why factions within the church demonstrate how the Corinthians do not believe what they said they believe in light of their behavior. Paul says that I'm going to point you back to a central image that actually shows why Christ is needed. And at first glance, these images may seem like two unique and separate pictures. This is far from the truth. The garden and the temple have always been linked. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem in Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see when you'd walk into the city was the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon. And they believed it was home of the God of the universe. That there, if you showed up to this temple, to this place, you could encounter the living God. And as I say that, you may be thinking, isn't God's home in heaven? 
And that's the whole point of this earthly temple, is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The building was a symbol which pointed to the fact that all creation is God's temple. And this is what the first page of the Bible is all about. You probably didn't think I was going to get back to Genesis today, but I am. The first page of the Bible, the story of creation, is one of God creating an ordered world out of a dark wasteland, showing that all creation is God's temple with humanity, with his creation. And then if you go just to the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, you see the next story, how it focuses in on the land. And at the center of this land was a region called Eden. And it's a garden in which God and humanity live together. And the temple in Jerusalem was modeled after the garden. The interior decoration of the temple was reflected of the garden. The original garden was where God dwelt. However, it didn't stay this way. Adam and Eve and eventually the priests and the Levites wanted to rule on their own terms. The representatives, the leaders, said we can define right and wrong for ourselves, and they were exiled. And lost in this exile, the prophets foretold of a day when there would be a new priesthood, and that when God's presence would fill all of creation once again. The foundation of that temple is Jesus. So when Paul brings these images together, this garden and this temple, when he talks about the church, their nature, their identity, who they are and how they should think and express the way of Jesus, he points back to Jesus as the foundation for the temple. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming to our world in a new way. Jesus presented himself as a new kind of priest. Even though Jesus wasn't a priest and he didn't work in the temple, Jesus said that God's presence, God's rest and rule was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. And after his resurrection, Jesus said God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they could become many temples, communities of people where God rests and rules, where the transcendence of God returned to the imminent frame, kind of that box life that we like to live, that we think we can determine everything, we can, we can manufacture everything, that we can predetermine and prescript the formula for the way life should be. God steps out of heaven and steps into our world in Jesus to return God with humanity. And so these communities, the church, the people of God point ahead to the eventual renewal of the cosmic temple where God's rule and reign, where his rest would fill all of creation, where this new creation doesn't need a building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules through his people. Leaning on these linked images, the garden and the temple, Paul has in view the individual believer, the collective of believers called the church in all of Corinth, and their leaders. And since the Corinthians are preoccupied with personal branding under the guise of leadership allegiance, Paul returns to put leaders in their proper place by rhetorically asking, 
What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? You are trying to define yourself by these leaders, by these brands, by these people. And instead actually losing the very God-given identity that you have. See, you're settling for a lesser place or a lesser role. See, Paul and Apollos were servants, not the master or the owner. And Paul calls himself a servant to undermine the picture of prestige they had in their minds. Because they thought, if we could just align ourselves with the right people group, if we could align ourselves with the right leader, then others would look at us and say, man, they've got it right. And they would even themselves have a, a sense of spiritual pride that says, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be good? What does it look like to have the good life? And people could then look at them and say, yes, they have the good life because they are aligned with a charismatic and gifted leader. And what Paul, as he does, is he kind of unwraps this thinking, kind of breaks it down all the way back to the foundation that says, The foundation are not these charismatic and gifted leaders. The foundation is Jesus. That is why around Generations Church, we say part of our vision is because of Jesus. If our foundation is not who he is and what he has done, if it's not bridging the gap between God and us and our world, then we are building on something that will always crumble. It will not last. I don't care how good the leadership is. I don't care about how good I I speak. If we build on anything else other than Jesus, what we seek to do in this world and in this community will not last. See, they've misplaced their trust. The reality of leadership must be put in its place and be replaced with affection and devotion that's reserved for God alone. And when Paul says that I am a mere servant describing himself, he is putting this picture in their mind that is radically upside down. Because no way would they want to be affiliated with a servant. No way would they want to be affiliated with someone who's seen as less. No way would they, would they, would they want to align themselves or say their personal brand is one of someone who isn't, doesn't have it all together or isn't charismatic in their leadership, or isn't the most eloquent of speaking. Rather, Paul's saying, if you understand the role of leadership, if you understand my role, then your spiritual growth will actually flourish rather than be stunted. They were misplacing their loyalties. The role of leadership should be put in its proper place. We should be because of Jesus people. Not because of Kyle people, because of John people, because of Richard people. Our motivation, our why, must be because of Jesus. And thus, we're able to grow into maturity. See, because it's not the leaders who provide access to God's family. It's Jesus. Christian leaders serve as a way to redirect people back to God. and But any progress in the lives of the church is the work of God. This is for you, God's field, God's building. It's not Paul or Apollos who causes the growth. It is God. And so Paul is fighting back against how the Corinthians defined personal identity. See, the chief question is, whose are you? In a world where slavery was rife and sexual ethics were conceived in terms of property, 
Virtually everyone belonged to someone. And so what Paul introduces in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 and concluded in verse 23, the identity of the Corinthian Christians and its leaders to which Paul draws attention does not concern who they are so much as whose they are. And both belong to God. Paul is saying, we Christian leaders are fellow workers belonging to God. And you, Corinthian believers, are God's field, God's building. For Paul's desire is for them to become what they are. That is my hope for Generations Church. Is that when I say we lay a foundation of because of Jesus, is that we become what we are. We are the place where God is supposed to rule and rest individually within our lives and collectively as a whole. So when people encounter the gathered group of believers, when they encounter you in your everyday life, as they look at you and they, and they understand, hey, you may not have it all together, but there is someone where, God's rule, where God rules and rests by how they live. And in fact, because of Jesus, you already are God's place where he rests and rules. But we want our everyday experience to catch up with that reality. And so herein lies Paul's next point. How the worker goes about the work matters in helping becoming how they become formed. So we know our everyday experience doesn't quite match up what we actually are in Christ. And so the role of leadership is not simply to say, get it together or get out. You should be perfect and you should have all the answers. No, rather the way of leadership and rather, in fact, the way of the church is progress over perfection. That we help our everyday life catch up to what we already are because our perfection is not achieved, it's received in Christ. And so when we start from that foundation, we can then simply receive the love of God and begin to express it and build upon that. So when I talk about how you re- interact with relationships, how you interact with your boss, how you interact with your children or your parents or your friends, you don't have to earn their approval. No, you have already been approved of in God. You're already adopted into the family. Therefore, you can respond in tense and difficult situations with love and patience. But the challenge is, is we try to build our lives on other structures. But the worker that builds on anything other than the foolishness of the cross, a give over get, a spirit over self, a progress over perfection mentality, even a seemingly successful structure will not last. You've heard sayings as, you do you. Or yeah, I would do that too. And people justify their reasonings for how they would view the world or how they would interact with that people. But if it's not the way of Jesus, it will not last. Even if it lasts in this age, it will ultimately not pass the evaluation of God. That's what Paul says. He says it will be burned up. It will be tested by fire. Because ultimately, anything that is not built on Jesus Christ in his will, in his way, won't get you on the right side of history. Because the right side of history is the cross. And so if you persist in heading towards the path of defining for yourself good and evil, what is wise or foolish, then you would inevitably head towards destruction. And what's so sad 
is that when we define right and wrong in our own eyes, when we try to form and influence other in a way that's contrary to the way of Jesus, we're actually destroying the very paradise of God's rest and rule. Because we want more of Jesus, more of his rest and rule in our lives rather than less. And when you say you do you, or get on the right side of history, or this is how I would handle it, that's not informed by the way of Scripture, we are crowding out the very place of God's rest and rule in our lives. And so it's less of us and more of Him. And at first glance, it seems like this warning is only for those in charge of the church, the leadership which it is. And while there are other texts in which address the character of the leaders, Paul has the whole church in view of for how they build. For Paul says, don't you yourselves know that collectively you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you. See, that's what's important about when we gather. It's together we are pointing back to the reality that it's not just God's Spirit that dwells in us individually after our baptism, but God's Spirit is here corporately, together, moving, changing lives, alerting you to things in your life that are incongruent with the way of the cross, saying, you're defining right and wrong in your own eyes here. Have you thought about this, bringing you back to the way of Jesus? And what's so challenging about that is we want to actualize our own identity. We want to build our lives on the way we want things to be. What Paul says is build with a way that's already are. Build a life that's not based on what you can see, but build a life based on who God sees you as. And he sees you. Your gifts, your abilities. He also sees your flaws and your fears and your failures. And he doesn't say that you are unfit for use. In fact, when you come with your total self for who you are, and say, here is who I am, Jesus, I don't have much, My fa- I got flaws, I got fears, I got failures. I need more of you. Use me. He says, fit for use. He says, you are worthy of my dwelling. The God of the universe sees you as the perfect place for his rest and rule. See, so when we try to build our lives and our identities on something else, we're actually settling for a lesser God, for a lesser identity. See, Paul's desire is for them to become, once again, what they are. Together, they are God's temple. While the Spirit dwells in each individually, the Spirit of God dwelling in their midst is of greater emphasis. And the Spirit is the key, the crucial reality for life in the new era. The presence of the Spirit and that alone marks them off as God's new people. God's temple when assembled in Christ's name in Corinth. And as God's temple in Corinth, the church was to be God's alternative to Corinth. Both its religion and its vices. But the Corinthians by their worldly wisdom, boasting in divisions, were in effect banishing the Spirit and thus about to destroy the only alternative God had in their city. Church, we must become what we are. We must become the temple 
in the garden. God's beautiful alternative to the diminishing city in our world. We must live the beautiful alternative. The way of Jesus is not go and and try harder or do more, but it's simply build a life on Jesus and represent me to the world and in fact portray a different way of being human, a different way of leading and loving and serving. It's a way of saying God rests and rules with us so we do not have to try to chase after God. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. No, he has already made a name for us in Christ and we can simply be and live. So let's be the beautiful alternative. It's why we can do boo buckets. It's we're trying to interrupt the everyday rhythms and routines of people to say there is another alternative to the way you are living. It's why we can do activity groups and go play volleyball or play a game of softball because we're trying to say is we can have healthy competition. We can jab each other a little bit, but at the end of the day, we can lock arms and be for each other. It's in those moments of relational strife and you wonder, where are you, God? That God shows up through his people and says, I am right here resting and ruling on your spouse, on your friend, on this fellow church member, on this fellow family member to sit with you when you are tired and sad. To show you that I am at work when you want to say, well, there's no change that can be had. People are too far gone. And then you see something good in someone else's life that says, God still works miracles. He still produces change that I think we so desperately want to see. Church, we can be God's beautiful alternative in our city. Not through defining right and wrong by our own wisdom. Not through aligning ourselves with the right leaders. Not through portraying the right brand, but by simply putting spirit over self and our everyday choices. That says, God, I need you to work in me so that you can work through me. In fact, we do not live as if the Spirit of God is in our midst when we gather and when we scatter. If we do not change the way, if we do not choose the way of the cross publicly and privately, then we are choosing our wisdom over God's. We must choose Him. So as as Paul wraps up in chapter 3, he says, The wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Exactly the same point is made, but now in terms of the divine perspective. If before the Corinthians were being shown the foolishness of their wisdom because God and God's ways stand in contradiction to it, they are now being urged to adopt God's perspective altogether since their wisdom, after all, is folly. And to prove his point, Paul refers back to two Old Testament passages to say that this way of living isn't new. Paul cites Job chapter 5 and Psalm 94, brought together in this keyword, the wise, along with God's attitude towards such. His citations together illustrate the utter futility of the wise. Hence the fact that their wisdom is foolishness in God's sight. Paul brings these about because in Job, it's expressed in the imagery of hunting in which the hunter uses the very craftiness or cunning of the prey as means of capture. The ultimate irony is that people are cunningly avoiding the God with whom they have 
to do life with, but God has used that very cunning to ensnare them, thinking themselves to be wise. They are, in fact, fools. The second text and psalm emphasizes their ultimate futility. God knows their reasonings. He's not unaware of our tendency to choose our ways over his ways, knowing that we're going to choose futility at times. The obvious point for Paul, therefore, is that the Corinthians are themselves fools if they do not take seriously this divine view of things. In our everyday aspects of life, we need moments of the divine to remind ourselves who we are. And not just who we are, but whose we are. We are God's. The place where he has chosen to rest and rule for those of us in Christ Jesus. See, we do not need to chase a garden of flourishing or a temple, for we are already the very locale where God can rest and rule. And when they choose their own, when we choose our own ways, we are replaying that garden sin again. Paul wants them to become what they are, meaning belonging to Christ means build with the eternal in mind. Stephen Covey has a famous saying that says, begin with the end in mind. I adopt that a little bit and say what Paul is urging the Corinthians to do. When they want to build a good life, and in fact, I think that is a noble and worthy pursuit because when God's original mandate is kind of lead this world, it's okay to build and construct and aspire. But when you do, do so with the eternal in mind. So often we build with the temporal in mind. So when we build with the eternal in mind, it means we're going to be able to open yourself to others. That at times you'll risk embarrassment for the sake of loving neighbor or showing where your fears and your failures are because saying, yes, even in my frailty, God still chooses to rest and rule in my life. Here is the change that he is working that we have the humility to revisit when we think is right and turn back to the wisdom of God. So for those of you who have the Spirit, tear down the areas you've built your identity on and return to the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if you are unaware of what you need to tear down, simply ask God to alert yourself to the things that you've built your identity on and He will point those out to you. For those of you who are exploring what it could even look like to build a life with Jesus as the foundation, maybe you're not there yet. My encouragement to you is turn to Christ and set a foundation that cannot be shaken. For Jesus is the only thing that lasts. He is the only one who says you are fit for use. He is the only one who can counter the lies of the world. And even the lies that we tell ourselves. He says, no, you are loved. In fact, you are so loved that I died on the cross for you. So that you could be fit for use. For those of you who are hurting, there is hope. Your story is not done. For those of you who are happy, rejoice and know that God is the one who brings growth and life. The Corinthians were boasting in their leaders because they thought if they had the right brand, then it proved they were on the right path to building the good life. 
that the allegiance to the right leader made them more spiritual. What makes you spiritual is not your allegiance to the right leader, is not allegiance to the right brand. What makes you truly spiritual is your allegiance to Jesus. And allow the Spirit to rest and rule in your life and bring about the change. See, the Corinthian era is an easy one to repeat. Not only do most of us have normal tendencies to turn natural preferences into exclusive ones, but in our fallenness, we also tend to consider ourselves wise, enough to inform God through whom, he, how he may minister to his people. Labels, whether as a badge of honor or a worded weapon, divide the church from being the beautiful alternative. When we as generations evaluate who we are and whose we are and what we do, we must do so under the garden temple motif so that we can truly be the beautiful alternative within our community. May the Spirit have its way with us. And in doing so, see heaven come to earth, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others and in our community. There are a lot of hurting people in our community. There are a lot of people who are just happy to go on as life as is. Settling for lesser identities, settling for lives that are built on things that can always be taken away. When we are the beautiful alternative, when the Spirit has its way with us, we build with the eternal in mind. Let us pray. God, you are good and we love you. I pray that we risk ourselves, that we open ourselves to others, that we take chances, God, that we, we make choices that show we have your perspective in view. Not our temporal safety or concerns, God, but knowing that you are a good God and a good giver of gifts, so you will take care of us in the everyday things of life when we surrender to your perspective in your way. Thank you for Jesus with whom we have access to you, can be connected to you, and can be a part of your forever family. It's in his name I pray. Amen.